0: Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. It's one thing to know the right doctrine. It's another thing to live consistently with what we know. In our Christian culture today, so many shy away from the study of theology and they even scoff at the mention of the word, the doctrine. To many postmodern Christians... The concepts of systematic theology and biblical doctrine are restrictive and many would even say archaic. It doesn't take more than a casual glance into the philosophy of ministry of most churches and many parachurch ministries as well to discover that doing whatever it takes to get people into the door is the operative paradigm for doing church. This has resulted in worship services that are designed to make the non-Christian or the non-churched Christian feel very comfortable and at ease. I know of one megachurch here in Houston where one of the pastors preaches on Sunday morning in blue jeans, a t-shirt, and bare feet. Now, if the primary function of the local church was evangelism, then actually I'd be all for that. But surprising as it may seem, the primary function of a local church is not evangelism. It's one of the things that happens in a local church on a Sunday morning. It should happen on Sunday morning. But the primary purpose of the local church, as it is delineated in the New Testament, is for believers to gather together and to worship in all of its aspects, in prayer and singing and giving and, and the, the reading of the Word, and not, not, not last but not least, the exposition of the Word, so that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Certainly, serious Christians desire to get people in the door, especially if what is meant by that is evangelism. But make no mistake, the Great Commission does not stop with evangelism. Once someone is saved... Biblical instruction should become a priority. Now, don't get me wrong, please. Don't don't get this wrong at all. Evangelism is critical. But after evangelism, there must be growth. And growth comes from learning and applying the Word of God to every situation in life. Paul's letter to the Ephesians models this principle. It's roughly the first half of the letter. The first half of the letter is essentially, not completely, but essentially theology. And the second half of the letter is essentially, although not completely, a practical, an exhortation to practical application of what was learned in chapters 1 through 3. Now again, as we've said before, and I I don't want to leave you with any misunderstanding, in the first three chapters there are Applicational principles. Certainly, over the last three months, we've or many months, we've made applicational, uh, application, applicational exhortations rather to the with regard to the things that are studied in chapters one through three. And certainly, there will be doctrinal a bit of doctrinal information that comes up in chapters four through six. But basically, if we were to outline the book, it would be outlined this way. If we were to chart the book, it would be charted this way: theology, chapters one through three, and then application chapters 4 through 6 chapter 4 begins one of the longest series of exhortations to appropriate behavior in all of Paul's letters three almost three full chapters of exhortation to appropriate christian behavior in the first 3 verses paul urges us to have a proper attitude toward the call of unity that he made in the first 3 chapters And then in verses 4 through 6 he'll illustrate how the three persons of the Trinity form the basis for that call to unity. Verses 1 through 6 then form one of these eight long sentences. It's the sixth of the eight long sentences in Ephesians, but we'll only consider verses 1 through 3 tonight. The, The three verses read this way. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the bond, uh, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first phrase here in Ephesians chapter 4 echoes a phrase that Paul actually himself had written several years earlier in his letter to the Romans. In the letter to the Romans, the first eleven chapters are essentially theology, and chapters twelve through sixteen, primarily fifteen, but it will include sixteen in it, are essentially application of the theology. And it's interesting that Paul begins chapter twelve of Romans in, with the exact same words that he begins chapter chapter four of the book of Ephesians. Romans twelve begins with the identical words that were followed, or that followed a doxology just like they do in Ephesians. Romans, Romans chapter 11, verse 36 says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory, or to him be glory, forever and ever. Amen. And then Romans 12, 1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now in this chapter, or at the end of chapter 3, we read this doxology, Now unto Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we have doxology at the end of chapter 11, and then this phrase, I urge you therefore, and then doxology at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians, and then this phrase, I urge you therefore. Now you wouldn't really be able to see... That phrase in the New American Standard translation, my Bible reads, I therefore, the prince of the Lord, entreat you to walk. But the, the phrase in the Greek language is exactly the same as, as, the, as the verses begin in both the beginning of chapter 12 of Romans and chapter 4 of Ephesians. I urge you, therefore, when one begins to comprehend at even the most basic level the infinite perfections of God, And how he intervenes on the behalf of his loved ones. It serves as motivation. It ought to serve as motivation to live a life in pursuit of God's glory and not our own. When we begin to understand just who God is and what he's done for us, we should be motivated. And that should be the only motivation we need, really. To live a life that brings glory to God and not... Our own glory. And, and that pursuit includes <coughs> adhering to God's prescriptive behavior. The more we understand God and the more we appreciate what he did for us, it ought not to be a, sh- a chore for us to obey God's prescriptive behavior. Why it's a chore so often, I'm not really sure. But I think it, I think maybe one of the reasons why is that we get so focused upon ourselves and we start we start looking at that which God has called us to do as drudgery or as a chore or something that I need to strive for when if we really placed our focus upon Him and what He's done for us, it would come much more naturally, much more much more easily, and we would be led by the Spirit not only to know about Him but to do things that are consistent with what we know. Now, the Christian life is much more than just overt behavioral practices. But we should never make the mistake of thinking that Christian behavior is irrelevant. You see, I hope you see the fine distinction that we're making. The Christian life is much more than just a set of overt behavioral practices. But the Christian life does include behavioral practices some people have said in the past that Christian life is not simply morality but includes morality I hope you see the consistency there as representatives of our Lord Jesus Christ as ambassadors for Christ our master has the right to expect a certain behavior from us Christian behavior is not irrelevant now there's got to be a balance here Because there are some people, and we would tend to call them legalists, some people who are legalists want to have the entirety of the Christian life be simply behavior. And then there are other people who we would call licentious licentious believers who would would say the Christian life doesn't involve any form of of, of, of appropriate behavior at all. Well, the Christian life does include behavior, and uh, as opposed to legalism, the Christian life includes behavior that's actually prescribed so many times legalists prescribe a behavior for believers that's not biblical at all. It's something that fits them. But on the other hand, we don't, we don't want to say, well, first of all, we don't want to say that, that the Christian life is only behavior, but we don't want to say it's not behavior at all either. And, and you're going to see that from now to the end of our study of the letter to the Ephesians. Paul will call upon us almost nightly. Every Wednesday night that we meet, he is going to call upon us to to have a certain behavior, either to continue to live in a certain way or to change our behavior so that we begin to live in a certain way because that's what we've been called to do. And the way he brings it up in the very beginning, he says he entreats us or he urges us or he begs us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, before he does this, though, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. And certainly this echoes... Chapter 3, verse 1, where at that point he also called himself the prisoner of the Lord. And we said at that time, and it bears, bears repeating now, Paul didn't consider himself to be a prisoner of the Romans. Now, to anybody else looking in on it, they would say, Paul, I think you're a bit mistaken here. The Lord doesn't have anything to do this, the secularist might say. The Lord has nothing to do with this. You're in a Roman prison. Actually, he was under house arrest, but there were Roman guards there. Most people would say, well, Paul, I, Paul, a prisoner of these dirty, rotten Romans. That's not what Paul said. He said, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He could also have said, I'm a prisoner of those dirty, rotten Jewish brethren of mine that put me in here or that, that caused so much stink that the Romans had to put me in here. So I'm, a, I'm, Paul, a prisoner of the Jews and the Romans. And, you know, I'm sure some people would have sympathized with him if he would have said that. But that's not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul knew. I think he knew with all of his heart the only reason that he's in a Roman prison is because God allowed it and because that's where God wanted him at that time. I don't know if Paul realized it at the time. We can almost see it almost 2,000 years later as we look back on this. We can almost see, or we can almost interpret the reason why he might have been there. Paul was a busy man. He was on the go all the time. I, I doubt he, he ever. I doubt if he took a day off a month. But God had work for him to do. God had, among other things, Roman uh, members of Caesar's household that needed the gospel. So Paul takes, uh, God takes Paul to Rome and brings the members of Caesar's household to him so that he can give the gospel to them. But there's something even more interesting than that to me. There are four letters that we have that are at least three of the four among the most beloved letters in the New Testament. And Paul wrote these letters while he was in prison in Rome. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and, of course, Philemon. So God had work for him to do, and Paul knew the only reason he's in prison there is because God put him there, God allowed him to go there, and the minute God wanted him somewhere else, he's going to be somewhere else. That's why he can relax. That's why Philippians is such a comforting letter. He writes all of these from prison. Don't forget that. Don't forget when he's calling these people to get along and these changes of behavior and this relaxed attitude, this gentleness, this humility. He's in prison when he writes that. Now, just just so you'll remember, he's not in the final imprisonment, This is the first of two Roman imprisonments. He's under house arrest here. Apparently, he can receive visitors. doesn't look like he can come and go like he wants to, but he can receive visitors. The second Roman imprisonment will be much more harsh. The second Roman imprisonment, he is at least traditionally understood to have been held in the Mamertine dungeon, uh, most likely in chains, and that's where he writes 2 Timothy. But he writes these first, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, in in the first Roman imprisonment. You know, for what it's worth, and maybe it's not worth much, but for what it's worth, in my view, this is one of the things that makes Paul who he was. He knew that his circumstances were that way because God had allowed them. And as soon as God didn't want him to be that way, God was going to change him. And for my, for my money, this is one of, one of the things that makes Paul truly, truly great. I urge you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. When you see the word walk come up in the New Testament in this type of context, it refers to a lifestyle. You know, there, there are different ways that that word is used. One is just to put one foot in front of the other, and I'm going to walk to the store. I'm going to take a walk around Memorial Park. But, of course, all of us know there's a metaphorical use for that term as well, and people even use it sometimes in, in conversation. Well, how's your walk, my friend? Or, and, and the Bible certainly uses it for our lifestyle. So Paul urges us, to walk, or to behave, if I might use that term, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Actually, the text, the Greek text actually just says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Now, the calling here, as soon as we see that word, at least most of us that have been in the New Testament for any period of time at all, immediately our minds drift to, say, an issue like our election, that kind of calling. And certainly, our calling in that sense, our salvation, is somewhat in view here. But also the calling that, that is in view, perhaps even to a greater degree, is the calling to function in unity in the body of Christ. The calling to function in unity in the body of Christ, at least in the context of the first three chapters. So when he says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling with, with which you've been called, certainly that's our salvation. We all have that responsibility as believers in the Lord Jesus, as, as people who have been saved by grace through faith, to behave in a certain way. But also, we have a responsibility to behave in a certain way based upon what Paul has said in those first three chapters. You remember that. This call to unity is going to require a certain behavior. So in just a moment, when we talk about things like uh, like humility and gentleness and and, um, patience, these three virtues will be all tied into getting along in the body of Christ. So there's two things here. Our salvation and the basis for the call to function in unity. So a Christian's behavior concerns not only their private, personal life, but a Christian's behavior has ramifications for the Christian community. We live, whether we like it or not, we live in community. And some people don't like that. There are are very fine Christians who act as though The admonition in in the letter to the Hebrews, to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, it's in a participle form, but it's still an imperative idea. Um, There are people who would like to consider themselves to be very mature Christians. At the same time, voluntarily restricting their own access to the Christian community. And I've got to tell you, there's no difference. There's no difference from doing that than to saying, I'm a mature Christian, and I'm going to have a wife and three girlfriends on the side. You say, well, whoa, wait a minute. That's ridiculous. How can you say that? How can you say I'm going to be I'm a, a Christian that's walking in fellowship with God and then openly disobey one of his clear commands? Or you, or you may say, well, I'm, I'm certainly I'm walking in fellowship with God, and I steal from my employer every time I get an opportunity. You so, say, wait a minute, isn't there something, in fact, we're going to get to it, isn't there something about not stealing in here? Well, yeah, there is, but that's just one of them. Okay? That's just as absurd, my friends, as, as, the, as the believer who would say, well, yeah, I, I'm a believer walking in fellowship with God, but I, I will never go to church. I don't need to go to church. I don't want any part of the Christian community. That doesn't fit my personality. Well, guess what? God didn't design this whole thing with your personality in mind, or mine either. He designed us all to function in community. There are spiritual gifts that are designed to function that way. So when we have the opportunity to get into community, we should do it. Now, there are a lot of different communities within the Christian community. We call them local churches. And some some local churches may fit your personality, and some other local churches may fit somebody else's personality better or or fulfill a particular need at a particular time, although I'm getting a little weary of, of American Christianity and I'm as American as you're going to get, so this is not a knock against America, but I'm knocking American Christianity right now. It's almost like we need to go back to John Kennedy's thing that he did in his first or his only inaugural address, ask not what you can, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. American Christianity says this, ask not what I can do for my church, ask what my church can do for me. And that's that is a carnal attitude. The first thing that we should be doing is ask what I can do for my church, my local church, and for the other believers in it. And then then we'll take that consumer-type mentality. So many Christians today have a consumer mentality. I'm going to attend here for a little while, and if it doesn't fit my needs, then I'm off somewhere else that does. Well, how about maybe you trying to help fill some of those needs while you're at a particular local church? We've got to get away from this consumer mentality that has perverted the local church. Now, there are three virtues. There are three virtues that Paul is going to mention that are critical in walking in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Not only our salvation, but this call to unity. And the first one shouldn't surprise us. It's the the virtue of humility. Paul does this a lot. The Old Testament and New Testament both do it. And that is, call us to stop thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Paul calls us in another place under the ministry of the Holy Spirit to consider someone else's needs as more important than my own. I don't like the translation over in Philippians that, that says humility should be, should be understood as considering someone else to be better than me. Because that's not, that doesn't fit the illustration. Jesus Christ himself is the illustration in Philippians chapter 2. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, I don't for a moment, not for a nanosecond, I don't for a moment believe that he was hanging between heaven and earth and thought that I was better than him or that you were better than him. No, but he considered my needs to be more important than his needs at that particular moment. That's humility. The interesting thing is, remember, Paul is ministering to a Greek culture in Ephesus. In the Greek culture, humility was thought of as a weakness, not a strength. Sometimes today in our culture, too, if you you watch too much television or, or too many movies, You kind of get the idea that meekness and mildness and and humility, especially in a male, is almost effeminate. It, it, It implies weakness, not strength. Well, not biblically. Even though in the Greek culture, humility was thought of as a weakness, not a strength. It was something to be practiced by slaves, not citizens. In the in the Christian community, humility is the first of these virtues. It is extremely important. An exhortation toward humility to a Greek culture would be counterintuitive for them. But regardless of the fact that it's counterintuitive, it's biblical. The first thing that we're going to have to do if we're going to walk in a manner worthy, or if we're going to walk worthy of that calling, or if we're going to have unity in the body of Christ, all, all part of that same phraseology, is we've got to stop thinking more highly of ourselves as individuals than we ought to think. And the second thing along the same lines is we've got to start considering someone else's needs as more important than our own. Now, a consumer mentality doesn't do that. The consumer mentality goes in and you order a, a Club Royale sandwich. You're really, really hungry. You order a Club Royale sandwich at the Jason's down in Clear Lake. You sit down to eat that Club Royale sandwich by yourself. You realize that while you were waiting on the sandwich, you've drained your iced tea. So you you leave that sandwich, which hasn't been touched. Anybody in their right mind would know not to clean the table off. You leave that sandwich, which hasn't been touched. You go over and get your iced tea at the self-serve. You come back, and the little fellow that's dusting the table has taken your sandwich away. Now, if it was totally all about me, you see, if it's all about me, then I'm going to throw a hissy fit because I'm hungry, and he just took my sandwich away, and I would pitch a fit and get him fired. How could you be so stupid to take a sandwich away when somebody did not take a bite of it yet? But you see, that's if it's all about me. But what about this kid? I don't know how hard he worked to get that, had to work to get that job in the first place. I don't know who he's trying to support on a minimum wage like that. And the kid is so efficient, he's cleaning off everything inside. It's the cleanest Jasons I've ever seen in my life. I didn't complain about him. He felt terrible. I just went up to the counter and said, "Hey, listen, big mistake back here. You know, you didn't, he was the guy was so efficient. He already cleaned my thing. Oh, we're terrible, will But no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I should have left my keys or something on the table. As a matter of fact, I thought about leaving my iPhone on the table, but I didn't want anybody to take it. <laughs> I said it's my fault. You see, but if it's all about me, then I fuss and try to get him fired. And you've seen people do this. You see, there are there are people that are otherwise." having a great day, and then they pitch a fit not even thinking for a minute of the results it might have in that other person's life. And all the kid was trying to do was something good. Now, I'm not for dawdling service. I'm not for rude service, anything like that. But when it's an honest mistake, yeah, mistakes can get made sometimes. You know, sometimes there's no bad intent to the mistake at all. People just make them sometimes. Yeah, you know what? You may have a right to get mad, but just because you have a right to get mad doesn't mean you have a responsibility to get mad. And if you're humble, you'll think of that other guy's needs as more important than your own, and you'll wait another 10 minutes while they bring you another Club Royale sandwich out. And you know what? If they don't bring you another Club Royale sandwich out, you still don't have to get the guy fired. You see what I mean? Wouldn't it be better just to go on next door and get you three tacos at the Taco Bell? than to ruin that guy's life because he was, really, he was just trying to do a good job. you see my point, I hope? One of these days, and that's just in a restaurant. What about in a church? If, if you had a whole church of people, just imagine this. I almost feel like John Lennon, but heaven forbid. Just. By the way, that is the single most atheistic song that has ever been recorded. But anyway, just imagine in a biblical way a whole church of people that we're all considering someone else's needs as more important than their own. Can you imagine the dynamic that would take place there? I don't even think we'd have to go to the next two, to the gentleness and patience. You'd have unity right then. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves on. But remember this, pride individually, and certainly if there's more than one person, and, and pride is kind of like an infectious disease. As soon as one person gets, starts acting selfishly, the other person in their own, in their own self-interest starts acting selfishly. Pride promotes disunity. Humility promotes unity. Pride promotes disunity. Humility promotes unity. If Do we need to look any further than the example of our Lord himself, who, although he eternally existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and seized, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. I hope you remember what happens after that. God honors him. And one of these days, every knee under heaven and earth is going to bow and and realize and and call him exactly who he is, and that's Lord. So Christ is the supreme example of humility. So the next time you think, well, that's all fine and good, that's a nice theoretical exercise for church on a Wednesday night. Don't you remember, it's not theoretical at all. Jesus has already done it. You know, when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, he already did that. When he said, love your enemies, he already did that. He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done to a far greater degree. If we want to have unity in our local church, it needs to start, these and every one of us, exercising humility and considering other people's needs is greater than our own. So what they got your chair. So what they got the parking lot, parking place that you always get. So what they got the last kolache. So what? You know? So what? Is it worth disrupting the unity in a church because my needs haven't been fulfilled today. It's something to think about, but it doesn't stop there. Paul moves on to the second of these virtues, and that would be gentleness. With all humility and gentleness. By the way, this is not with just some humility. It was all all humility. And it's also, apparently, with all gentleness. That's debatable, but I think that all applies to both. A believer is supposed to be gentle or meek. And again, I know that in our culture today, Gentleness and meekness, just like humility wasn't considered a virtue in a Greek culture, gentleness and meekness is not considered a virtue in many circles in our culture today. It's just not. Superheroes are not gentle and meek. You know, The the new James Bond, the reason he's so popular is he's anything but gentleness, gentle and meek. He's the the polar opposite of that. And that's what we all flock to the movies and we want to see, but that doesn't make for unity in the body of Christ, and it doesn't make for a Christian walk or a Christian experience this is going to be God honoring. Gentleness and meekness is the opposite of self-assertion. It's the opposite of rudeness. It's the opposite of harshness. And doesn't it humble us all? It humbles me to think that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, would have to tell us not to be rude. Yeah. You would think that that would come naturally for someone who's indwelt by means of the Holy Spirit, someone who's been saved by grace through faith, that has the whole heaven thing all worked out. You would think that we wouldn't have to be warned against that, but apparently we do. We're supposed to be gentle, or perhaps if you prefer the word meek, some of your translations will use that. It suggests having our emotions under control, but it shouldn't be mistaken for weakness. Meekness or gentleness is not a weakness in believers. It doesn't mean that the individual believer will never become angry. You know that some gentle people become angry? But you also know there's a time to be angry and a time not to be angry. And if you if you get angry in times when you're not supposed to be angry, then that's a sin. But I would, I would be careful now. Listen real carefully. If you don't get angry at times when you should be angry, that may very well be a sin too. You see, when Jesus came on the scene and he saw what was happening in the temple in his father's house, it was the right thing to do for him to become angry at what he saw. We shouldn't take sin so lightly it doesn't bother us at all. There are certain things that happen out in the culture, out in the world, that, that are so terrible, it should make us mad. And then there are other things that we get mad about that's strictly because of our own selfishness. Somebody cut in front of me. Somebody got the last collage. You know, whatever it may be, there are some things that ought not to make us mad. So we need to be very, very careful there. Moses also. There was a time when Moses got pretty hot under the collar too at least most of the time. Moses would do it at the right time. Now, of course, he did it very famously at one time when it wasn't the right time. But it was the wrong time, and he didn't get to go on the land because of it. So timing is everything when it comes to being angry. And like I told the men's prayer groups, sometimes we don't, if you're not sure, don't try it at home. This is something just to just be very careful about. <laughs> but be very, very careful There's a the time to be angry, and there's a the time not to be angry. Just, it just depends on what you're angry about. Be very careful there. And finally... The virtue of patience. Now, this is one that we all have no problem with, so we can go over this one really, really fast. (laughs) I don't have a lot of time to go over patience tonight. (laughs) No, I got this one down. I'll tell you what, patience down. Just ask my wife or my children. You know, it's funny. Now that the children are a little older, some of the things that they remember, (laughs) I'd like to purge, I like one of those little devices where you just purge it out of there. How in the world do you remember that? You were only about three or four years old when that happened. And a lot of it has to do with a lack of patience. So I'm glad that I've matured to to a point where I'm just totally patient now and have no problem with this at all. And God knows that I'm certainly joking about that. Patience patience is related to the concept of endurance, uh, but it's also related to the concept of self-restraint, which doesn't insist on retaliation after a wrong is suffered. Patience is a, is a challenge, but I think there's also a reason why it comes third in this list. If, if we can exercise humility, gentleness and patience are going to be easier to come by. If we can exercise humility and gentleness, then patience is going to flow. But without humility, and I dare say without a, a gentleness of spirit, I don't think you're going to be able to work up Patience. I think it's going to be one of those things where where you, you just you try to be patient, 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 patient. All of a sudden, you just blow like a volcano, because it wasn't really patience; it, all, it was something false. Now, remember, all three of these virtues are motivated by, and and made possible by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are not going to do this without Him. So, if you say, "I just don't understand how I could ever start considering others as more important than myself," there is this thing, you know, this Freudian thing of self-preservation. Well, yeah, that that would be the. The the idea of the flesh, of the old sin nature, but the idea that comes from the Holy Spirit will be what you see in front of you here. So believers should exhibit patience. The attitudes of humility, gentleness, and patience will then promote humility, will promote rather unity among Christians. Now having stated these three virtues, Paul then very rapidly states the manner in which they're to be carried out in one's conduct, bearing with one another or showing forbearance to one another in love and making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We have the responsibility to lovingly, in a genuine way, to lovingly tolerate one another even when we have differences. It's easy to tolerate somebody when they don't have any differences, but there's no tolerance there. (laughs) You see? The whole idea of tolerance means you have differences with somebody. Now, this is really important because tolerance in today's culture means something different, I think, than biblical tolerance. Biblical tolerance doesn't mean that we necessarily have to go along to get along or to compromise on issues where compromise is not the appropriate thing. It's not the best option. But even when we disagree with somebody with regard to their viewpoint, we still need to tolerate the individual. Okay? And I hope that we see that. Toleration of the individual is essential to the Christian's walk. Now, all of this should be done in consideration of the call to unity in the body of Christ. We cannot accomplish this on our own. Never will happen. Now, some people have a personality that lends itself toward gentleness. Some might have a personality that would maybe lend itself toward humility, or even maybe there's somebody out there that has a personality that lends lends itself toward patience. But we're not talking about personality traits. I'm talking about something that is driven by the ministry of the Holy Spirit within an individual. So we can't use a lack of personality. That's just not the way I'm wired. We can't say that. That's no excuse for a a lack of an exercise of humility, gentleness, or patience. It must be the Spirit's work. It must be the Spirit's work, and we must be ever mindful not to fall into the disunity trap. So if we're going to have unity in a local church, we need to exercise humility, gentleness, patience. But first and foremost, we need to make sure we're right with relationship to the Holy Spirit. That means I'm submitting my will to His. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to have that last kolache. Okay, but, hey, listen, you feel free to take it. Submit our will to his. He'll give you the motivation, the empowerment to do it. So the application section is these three incredible chapters. You're going to love these. The application section begins with a call to humility, gentleness, and patience that will function in an atmosphere of love with a diligent pursuit of spirit-led peace.